Wangari Maathai was herself a force of nature. Born in 1940 in rural Kenya, she became an advocate for environmental protection, democracy, and women's rights. Her work mattered so much that in 2004, she became the first African woman to be awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. She passed on in 2011 from ovarian cancer, but her words and work still resonate today. Luckily, we're able to hear from Wangari in her own words. In 2009, Francesca Rihanna and Bill Bowie of Sea Change Radio got the chance to talk with Wangari Maathai when she was on tour in the United States. Now we get to listen to their interview and think about how Wangari can continue to inspire. In her native Kenya, Wangari Maathai saw that deforestation was devastating the environment. Good arable land was eroding, streams were getting polluted or drying up, and women had to go further to find ever-scarcer firewood. So in 1977, she founded the Grassroots Greenbelt Movement. Over the past 32 years, it's planted 35 million trees, bringing back whole ecosystems with it and revitalizing villages. The program has been carried out mainly by the women in those villages. By hiring them to plant the trees, it gave them the means to care for their children and protect their environment. The corrupt regime of Daniel Arap Moy sought to stop Wangari Maathai, arresting her numerous times and even jailing her. In 1991, she was beaten while planting trees on public lands and suffered a head injury. But she fought on and earned world acclaim for her actions and her courage. In 2004, Maathai became the first African woman to receive the Nobel Peace Prize for her contribution to sustainable development, democracy, and peace. Sea Change co-host Bill Bowie and I sat down for an intimate chat with Wangari Maathai at the Marlboro College Graduate School, where Bill teaches. You have said that the planting of trees is the planting of ideas. What ideas are you trying to seed when you plant trees? Uh, some of the major ideas that we have been trying to share for the last 30 years or so is to uh, encourage all of us, the human species, to understand and to appreciate that we are part of nature, that we are not separate from it, uh, and that we, when we destroy uh, nature, we are in many ways undermining our own capacity to survive. And this is very important because so many of us think of nature as something to exploit as if we can survive without it. So this is one of the major ideas. And we then push it very far and get to the governance issues and say that it is very important for governments, for those in, who are in charge of uh, our politics and our economics to appreciate that we needed to have political and economic systems that protect the environment because a clean and healthy environment ensures that we too would be healthy. And the final linkage that we uh, bring here is the idea of that if we do not manage our resources in a responsible way, in an accountable way, if we do not share these resources in a, in a more equitable and just ways, sooner or later, 
we get ourselves into conflict with those who have been marginalized or excluded or deliberately made so poor that they begin to destroy the very environment that we all rely on. And therefore, it's very important to see the linkage between the way we manage our resources, the way we govern ourselves, and the way we link that with the possibility of living in peace or in conflict with each other and our neighbors. Now, when you did receive the Nobel Peace Prize, and I think that this was the first time, Wangari Matai, that it was awarded, that the connection was made between peace and the environment, you've just pointed to one of those, that is people who are impoverished get into conflict with each other. I think we're seeing that in Darfur. I wonder if you could make the connection between that peace, the environment, and the kind of democratic impulse that you are also trying to nurture through the programs that you do? Yeah, well, well see, um, we were very honored to have been identified by the Norwegian Nobel Committee and for our work uh, which we had been doing and trying to bring out these issues. But, you know, until the Norwegian Nobel Committee discovered us, we were very much in a lonely corner. We were struggling with a very dictatorial system, uh, a system that did not respect human rights, a system that was exploiting the diversity that was characteristic of our community and we know is characteristic of many societies uh, in the world. And it was a system that was not inclusive. And, and we recognized that without all these aspects of governance, we end up in a conflict, and it is a conflict over things like water, like land, like grazing areas. Uh, and so we, we recognized that there is a very close linkage between these issues and conflict. And we also observed that, especially in Africa, there were so many conflicts. And when you looked at them and got below the superficial uh, complaints of ethnicity or, or religion, it was uh, always a conflict over competition over resources. One of the reasons that you started the Green Belt Movement was because of the deforestation that had happened, and uh, that deforestation was was largely a result of the kind of governance or um, economic imperialism that had been seeded by the colonialism. In what ways was the Green Belt Movement a response to that kind of imperialistic governance? Uh, yes, and as you said, the, that imperialistic government uh, during the colonial period was adopted by our post-colonial administrators uh, who did not appreciate the fact that the colonial administration was destroying the environment, was destroying the forests, was um, opening up land that should not have been opened up for agriculture and human settlements. And what we we were uh, we tried to do was to raise our voices against this and and the biggest disappointment disappointment for me personally is that one would have expected that once we became independent and once we began to manage our own resources and our own affairs 
we would be more responsible and we would be more accountable and we would <clears throat> be more concerned about the, the welfare of the people. But those who assumed the leadership really forgot all the commitments they had promised the people. And as the people looked up to them, they just went on, on with a lot of greed, a lot of selfishness, a lot of... Um, dictatorial tendencies and eventually we found ourselves not moving in the direction that we had hoped when we got independence and eventually we realized that it doesn't matter most people once they are in power they need to be regulated they need to be controlled they need institutions that will make sure that they do not exploit these resources at the expense of the common good and that's these are some of the issues that we have been trying to pass all these years. Wangari Matai, you have talked about how Africa is rich, really, truly rich in resources, and yet the people are so poor. The question of development here looms. China and India are developing in ways that are profoundly unsustainable, following the example of, of the U.S. and the West. How do you see Africa being able to develop to counter that poverty in a way that is sustainable? Well, as you probably know, I am here in the United States of America, uh, and I'm here to launch a book that is actually already in the, in the shelves, Challenge for Africa. And in that book, I'm trying to reflect on my experiences of 30 years on trying to promote sustainable development. And what I have discovered is that it is not easy to promote sustainable development because quite often people see development as a way of improving quality of life, creating wealth. And that is very attractive to citizens. And as we do so, quite often we sacrifice the environment. We pollute. For example, these days we are very aware that when we use fossil fuels, we are pumping greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. We are beginning to influence the increase of temperature, and we are beginning to be told that we are going to have problems in the future due to global warming. But even for countries like India and uh, China, it's very difficult to run away from the uh, model that we have adopted from the industrialized countries of the West and Japan because uh, development at that time was done with fossil fuels as the driving force, as the driving source of energy. And now the problem we have is many people say, shall we develop or shall we protect the environment? And the message surely must be, we must find a balance between improving our quality of life, but at the same time, not undermining the environment and therefore the capacity of our species and other forms of life to continue. That can be controlled by, first of all, we are all talking about, we can invest in new and renewable sources of energy that are low in carbon, solar, wind, hydropower. These are sources of energy that can help us to develop without sacrificing the environment. And it's also very important for us to, to recognize that 
even if you are in China or in India or in the United States of America and you feel that you are very far say from a forest that is being logged in the Congo Basin or in the Amazon or in Southeast Asia. You are not very far, I can tell you. With respect to the environment and sustainable livelihoods and our capacity to continue with our way of life as we know it on this planet, we are indeed a village. And what is happening in faraway places in Africa that is undermining the environment, for example, deforestation by companies that mostly come from China, from India, from other developed uh, countries like Europe. Eventually, the damage that is being done down there will catch up with you wherever you are because we have become very interconnected and especially when it comes to climate change, it's not going to look at the boundaries and say that it will only affect the people who have contributed to the greenhouse gases. It will affect all of us. When the seas rise, they will rise everywhere. When fresh water declines, it will decline everywhere. When food crops fail, they will fail in many parts of the world. So it is very, very important that all of us understand this concept of sustainability, for lack of a better word. What we want to say is that we must develop, we must improve our quality of life, yes, but we must not do it at the expense of our environment and our ability to survive in this environment. When I think about the environment, I often get cynical. The world is getting warmer. The sea levels are rising. We are in the middle of a great extinction with species dying off every day. Maybe the human race won't even be around in another 200 years because we'll drive ourselves out of existence. To me, it feels very grim. That's why I'm bolstered by the people who haven't given up hope, not by a long shot. The activists of Idle No More, the farmers in Wisconsin, people like Wangari Maathai and the residents of Flint who pushed for clean water, they all believe that a better, healthier world is possible. And that we should all have access to a better environment, even if we're not rich. Your ability to breathe clean air and drink clean water and be around trees shouldn't depend on your zip code or your income. We know that we can't keep operating how we've been operating. People like these activists provide a way forward. And that is rare and wonderful. You've been listening to Propaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Thanks for listening to today's show. 